Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back, Critic listeners. The Cold War ended with the dismantling of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the USSR in 1991. But when did it start? Shortly after the end of the Second World War is the common view, But did it actually start with the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917? And if we view it as a confrontation between the West and Soviet Union, are we forgetting about the actions and influence of communist China? Professor Jeremy Black, Senior Fellow at Policy Exchange, picks over the evidence with Graham Stewart. However relations between Western countries and China pan out in the years and perhaps decades ahead, there's already a template for a Cold War. That, of course, the Cold War between the what was the Soviet Union and the democracies and their uh, allies elsewhere in the world. Um, most historians see it as a Cold War that lasted for about 45 years or so, um, either from the closing stages of the Second World War or more traditionally in that period in 1946 between Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, which he delivered in Fulton, Missouri, and the American diplomat George Kennan's long telegram, which uh, articulated a view of the need to contain communism, uh, which became the Truman Doctrine of 1947. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black Uh, You take a longer view on this. You don't date the beginning of the Cold War to the first period after the Second World War. When, in your view, did the Cold War start? Yes, I would uh, actually start it after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 and argue that, in in fact, it shapes um, uh, much of 20th century history at the level of uh, international politics and conflict. Um, so, I, you know, I published a book on that called The Cold War and Military History, which came out in 2015. And thinking about it subsequently and doing more work on the subject, I would underline these points. I mean, if you're looking, for example, at the struggles between, let's say, on the one hand, Britain and the United States, and on the other hand, the Soviet Union, they actually, if you're looking at when they fought each other, um, they fought each other during the Russian Civil War. And what you could argue is that the Cold War was hot at the time of Western intervention in the Russian Civil War. So that's at the end of the 19-teens, beginning of the 1920s, and that thereafter the Cold War was the aftermath of that, and that it lasted to 1989 with an interlude from 1941 to 45 when these powers um, were allies, but that as it were in 1945, uh, you, you know, usual services were resumed and um, they went back to their previous pe- period of, uh, of animosity. So I would very much take the view that the classic account, which begins, as you correctly say, in the late 40s, is deeply flawed because it lacks that deep history of looking back to the earlier period, which was not only important for the West, but also crucially important for Stalin. I mean, Stalin, after all, um, his worldview is in many senses framed during the uh, Russian Civil War. And to start him off in 1945-46 is, I think, distinctly limited. And I'd say the same with Mao Zedong. So, um, obviously, we have Western powers like uh, America, Canada, 
uh, Great Britain being involved in the Russian Civil War, attempting to overturn the, the Bolshevik victory, that fails. Um, but then there's a long period in the 1920s where there's this ideological tension between uh, the new Soviet Union and uh, the Western powers. Uh, but despite the creation of the Comintern, and it'd be interesting to have your views on that, um, the ability of Russia, or the Soviet Union, I should say, to actually uh, project its power is limited. So is it these two phases of Cold War, the pre-Second World War period and the post-Second World War period, actually fundamentally different? Because in the earlier period, whatever they may have, however much they may have wanted to export world communism, the, 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 the Soviets didn't have the power to do so. After the Second World War, they did. Well, that's an interesting view. I mean, one can sort of adapt that slightly. First of all, uh, the Western powers, and they included Japan, incidentally, which provided the largest number of foreign troops, and it was a coalition of 14 states. The powers that came into the Russian Civil War were not trying to to uh, overturn the Russian, uh, the Bolshevik triumph. They were trying to thwart it. At that stage, there was a civil war uh, in Russia. So I think that's, that's the first point. And of course, there was no, as it were, natural limit to the Soviet Union at that stage. Um, the uh, Soviet forces, of course, advanced to near Warsaw. Uh, there was a communist takeover briefly under Belakun in Hungary, um, there were, just as there were far right-wing insurrections in Germany, so there were far left-wing insurrections. So the sense that there was an obvious and easy limit is, I think, a flawed one. And separate to that, the Soviet Union played an active role in trying to limit what it saw as Western imperialism and the clients of Western imperialism, particularly in Turkey, in Persia or Iran, and in and in China, where, for example, you get um, uh, the, the Soviet Union sending advisors, sending arms, and where you get a, a very large-scale uh, rising. And in a sense, again, <laughs> if you're looking at it at a, as a hot war, if you wish to think about it in those terms, um, you know, it's very much in the front line in China, in the uh, early 1930s. Well, in fact, uh, actual fighting between uh, nationalists and communists uh, be um, uh, beginning in 1927. So, I mean, if what you want to say is that the Soviet Union is more successful after 1945, the answer is, of course, yes. Um, if you want to say, though, that it's fundamentally different attitudes, I would say no. But my um, I take my question further and say, in the 20s and 30s, where was the Soviet Union winning? I mean, you, you mentioned they advanced almost as far as Warsaw, the gates of Warsaw, but they, they were beaten back, the, the, the Treaty of Riga in, in 1921. I mean, effectively, they had been... Um, beaten. Yeah, there was a pattern of containment, as there was indeed to be a pattern of containment in the 1950s. I mean, if you want to look at a, um, a different geopolitics, which is an interesting way to do it, 
Um, you could argue it then another way forward. You could argue that the 1950s is rather like the 20s and 30s, except the Soviet Union has advanced further, not least because it's allied to um, communist China and to North Vietnam and North Korea. But there is still effective containment. But what you could then argue, if you wanted to be really interesting, is to say, actually, the Cold War enters a different stage uh, because in, from the 60s onwards, the as the communist powers, as it were, leapfrog containment, if you wish to use that uh, image, and establish allies with military bases of the communist powers in places as various as Cuba, Egypt, uh, for a while Somalia, for a while Ethiopia, Angola, Mozambique, and so on. So that, I mean, compared to that, the Soviets weren't actually doing particularly well in either the 50s or the 30s. They were still effectively contained. But containment breaks down. Now, why containment breaks down is an interesting question. And you could argue that it's partly to do with the collapse of uh, the uh, Western empires the and that this uh, provides more opportunities. You could argue uh, a whole host of things. You could say that just groups together in a misleading fashion what are separate uh, narratives as you know for for individual states but i certainly i would be wary i mean what you're essentially saying is you can't look at the earlier period as a cold war because it's recognizably different to the later period and i would say well if you mine down and analyze the later period it itself is no one unit uh, but that elements, significant elements that you see in the 1950s were already there earlier. So let, let's look at some of those elements that were there earlier. Uh, one of the great fears of Western countries was, was the activities of the Comintern. Um, actually, how effectual was the Comintern? Well, that's an interesting, interesting question. I mean, I would argue that the degree to which there was enthusiasm for um, communist solutions was, was divided among two different categories. Category one was part of the trade union movement, and you generally had in most countries uh, on the left two strands of trade unionism, the socialist strand and the communist strand. And in some countries, France, for example, the communist strand was very potent. In other countries, Britain, for example, it was less strong. Um, so there's no hard and fast answer to that one. The second strand, which is significant, is that is the support uh, for um, communism among what you might, whatever you might mean by intellectuals or semi-intellectuals and such like. Uh, that was most significant in those states where either you have a embryonic or a developing uh, anti-imperial nationalist movement, and that can become quite significant, as indeed, for example, in Vietnam, or for states where you have what you might call popular front entryism, in other words, uh, that the political solution uh, against uh, the right wing is to devise a full platform left wing and that that permits communists to become more influential within the political system. Now, what is interesting about Europe and Latin America in the 1930s 
is that democracy collapses in many countries, but that on the whole, that is not to the benefit of the left, either a benefit of the communist left or the benefit of the non-communist left. On the whole, it is right-wing nationalists of some type or another, more looking towards a Mussolini-type model, as with the Vargas regime in Brazil, for example, but also some of them influenced by the Hitlerian model. Now, the communists were not brilliantly successful compared to them, and I think that is, that is uh, a, a point. Uh, after World War II, again, they weren't brilliantly successful either. I mean, communism tended to be most effective when it was supported by the armed forces of the Soviet Union, which was instrumental in the takeover in places like Romania, uh, but also more generally in Eastern Europe. Um, and it was also more effective if it could um, link with a anti-imperial nationalist narrative. But other than that, I think it's fair to say that communist uh, penetration, while significant, uh, was less uh, to the fore than one might otherwise have anticipated. And in the earlier period, would you say the uh, backing of the Soviet Union was a help or a hindrance to uh, communist and far-left movements attempting to foment revolution elsewhere? Well, it was definitely a help because they could provide large amounts of money and arms, both of which were very significant in China, for example, um, just as resources were to be very significant during the Chinese Civil War of 1946 to 49. And thereafter, uh, once China becomes communist and pro-Soviet, also in neighboring uh, uh, Korea and in Vietnam. So the supply, I mean, ultimately a civil war uh, rests on force, um, and that was very important. And, uh, you know, um, so another good example is the Greek Civil War. Whilst Yugoslavia um, is uh, in cahoots with the Soviet Union, then there is uh, a large-scale supply um, to the um, the anti-royalists in the Greek Civil War. Once there is the, the split between um, um, Stalin and Tito, then, then that situation has radically changed. Um, the period of fraternity between the Soviet Union and Mao's China breaks down and breaks down dramatically. Is it right to see the Cold War then purely in terms of West versus Soviet Union, or should we see it in a slightly more triangular relationship, West, Soviet Union, and communist China, should communist China be seen distinctly? And, and actually, is communist China's relationship to the West on a, on a very different order to how the threat from the Soviet Union was, was perceived? Well, that's, again, a fascinating question. I mean, there is the, the idea and the attempt by the uh, Soviet Union to maintain a coherence in communism uh, was one which had been eased in the interwar years precisely because they're not a multiplicity of communist states and also because of the um, significance of Soviet support and of course also because of the brutal murder of those who are regarded as critics particularly those who can be labeled as Trotskyites so all of that works now and that works to a considerable extent in the late 40s very beginning of the 50s but while 
whilst Mao um, didn't like the way he was pushed around and, uh, by Stalin, but whilst he accepted that Stalin was an older leader, um, that relationship is already under tension by the late 1950s. The tensions between Mao and Khrushchev are very much to the fore, and at the 22nd Soviet Communist Party Congress, which is in October 1961, already Khrushchev and others had criticised the Chinese. The Chinese criticise uh, the Soviets in that period, and relations therefore are poor. So yes, you are absolutely correct that there is, in geopolitical terms, a tripartite uh, relationship, and you are absolutely correct in implying that this provides the West with uh, opportunities. In fact, one can take this a stage further. If the Soviets and the Chinese had cooperated, as indeed at the present moment China cooperates with Mr. Putin's Russia, then the situation would have been much, much graver for the West in the 1970s, a period of economic downturn, of a lack of confidence in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, and indeed of a degree of internal subversion, if you wish to use the term. I mean, I think it's rather difficult to think what else you can say about things like the National Union of Miners' strikes against uh, democratically elected governments in Britain in the 1970s and 80s. Um, so that the uh, at that period, the fact that the Soviet Union had to consider the possibility that any conflict with the West might lead or result in deterioration in relations with China was very, very serious. Now, we know that the Soviets were considering an attack on the West certainly seriously as late as 1983, but they did know that any attack on the West would have these, this wider strategic implication. And, of course, the Vietnam War, one of the most clear elements of the Cold War in proxy form turning hot. Should we see that as a proxy war with a Chinese influence on, on communist uh, um, um, progress? Or is Moscow still a hand behind that as well? Well, uh, Moscow and Beijing competed in influencing Hanoi, which in fact gave Hanoi an opportunity to try and play off each against another in pursuit of its own interests and, uh, and gaining resources. Um, so that element is very important. In terms of the wider, wider geostrategy, of course, the American-Chinese uh, reconciliation in the early 70s ironically leads to a situation by the end of the 70s in which the Chinese are fighting the Vietnamese. Um, and the fear that the Vietnam War would lead to a kind of domino effect in which Malaysia and Thailand in particular would succumb to the advance of communism uh, proved to be anything but um, so I think that element's significant. And if I'm taking it a bit stage wider, I mean, I've written quite extensively on the geostrategy of that period. It's worth bearing in mind that the key event in the um, sort of uh, that period, the 1960s, uh, the, you know, the Vietnam War of that period uh, in Asia is not the Vietnam War per se. It is the um, the toppling of the nationalist left-wing leaning Indonesian regime and the sort of slaughter of large numbers of communists, allegedly 120,000 roughly. Um, and that sort of carried out by pro-Western uh, Indonesian generals uh, proves to be much more 
more strategically significant from the, than the Vietnam War. I mean, actually, uh, as a result of that, by the end of 1966, the West had strategic depth in that area. And quite frankly, what happened to Vietnam was irrelevant strategically. The problem is there was no way to get out of that without accepting a loss of face. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about um, geostrategy is people don't, on the whole, tend to look at these wider things. They tend to be far too much focused on the narrower operational facets of conflict. Was there a moment uh, where the Cold War could have been solved earlier, an opportunity that wasn't grasped by either side? Well, it depends what you mean by solved. I mean, if you mean solved by moving to hot war, <laughs> solving it in that sense, in which, in other words, finding out which power was most likely to win, um, that could have happened very easily. If you mean imagining some benign order in which they would all have coexisted happily, um, I think that uh, is a rather interesting uh, view of what might have happened, but I'm rather skeptical about it. And I have to think, I have to say, and one needs to underline this point, that had there been a peaceful settlement, so-called, whichever, what, whatever you mean by peaceful in this context. So let us say the Helsinki Agreement, let us say German Ostpolitik had led to some kind of a peaceful settlement, then what that would have mean it meant was the consolidation of communist tyranny in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. If you think that's benign, I certainly don't. And in the meantime, there is absolutely no sign that the Soviet Union and its local allies, who often wagged the, you know, the tails who were wagging the dog, would have continued their attempts in, for example, Central, uh, Central America, places like El Salvador, Nicaragua, uh, uh, you know, in parts of Africa, uh, Angola, Mozambique, uh, East Africa. Um, so no, I don't think that at all. And I think, in fact, one has to be quite clear about this. If one postulates a peaceful end of the Cold War, which would have left the Soviet Union as a major state capable of exerting its influence around the world, then I do not think that would have been an attractive outcome for one minute. So, just indulge me for a moment. So, in 1953-54, uh, Winston Churchill was hoping of having a, a great power summit. He's, one of the reasons he stays on as Prime Minister is his belief that he can bring the great powers together and find some form of peace. Uh, was, he, was he just barking up the wrong tree there? Well, he wasn't barking up in the wrong tree in the sense that he knew that a nuclear war, as indeed was discussed in 1955 at Geneva when Malenkov and Eisenhower discussed it, would not be a good thing. It would have devastating consequences. They'd moved from atom bombs to hydrogen bombs, etc., etc. I mean, ironically, they already had what you might call your benign outcome. I don't think it's benign, but your benign outcome in the sense that the Americans and the British had determined there would be no, quote, rollback. And the, there would be, by rollback, you mean pushing the communists back, because what that would mean is the fear that there would be war. And anyway, it had been tried in Korea and hadn't worked very well in terms of the northern part of Korea. But the consequences of that 
is what you get with the Hungarian rising in 1956, which is Hungarians being murdered uh, by Soviet tanks in, uh, in uh, the streets of Budapest without anybody doing anything about it, um, because that is what we mean. So if you think that is benign, say so. But my view is this. Sometimes I'm a conservative. Sometimes as a conservative, one has to have a hard headed, pragmatic sense of the national interest and link to that one's view of what is the international interest that goes with that. But one needs to be away from any illusion that that is necessarily a benign outcome for some of the people involved. Yes, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of real politics. So, well, if you're thinking in terms of real politics, I think that what you might call the Soviet military-industrial complex and its links with the party is so powerful in the 1950s that the idea of it simply, uh, you know, shutting up shop and saying, let's all go and behave like, uh, you know, sort of conceited Western liberals. No, I don't think there's much chance of that. Mm -hmm. So as we look to what relations may be with China in the coming years and decades. We may have a situation where uh, the People's Republic of China invades Taiwan. Uh, decisions will be have to take and uh, what the response to that will be. Um, what lessons should be learned from the long period of the Cold War, whether we date it from 1917 or 1946-47, what, what should we learn from that? What, what's useful as we approach uh, a more difficult relationship with China in the years ahead? Well, lessons always are a matter of one has to be cautious about that. Let me just make one or two points. Um, in the case of the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1950s, the 1980s, finally, and most importantly, we know that there were significant differences between Soviet leaders over policy. And in the late 1980s, that leads, of course, to the unraveling of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. At the present moment, we treat China as an undifferentiated monolith. That, of course, is the ideology of the CP, the Communist Party, um, and there is clearly a degree of truth of it. But in it, but we need to work out how um, we can try and influence internal debates within China. And again, one's not thinking of them that the choices are necessarily benign, but one has to be aware that that is a uh, a factor. One has to consider who might be better deterred by Western shows of vigilance and who is going to be less deterred, etc., etc., etc. So that's point number one. Point number two, we have to be realistic. Now, being realistic means deterrence is a good idea, but is deterrence going to lead to action which might well be unsuccessful? So let me give you an obvious example. I'm not sure that historical lessons are always parallel, but um, people have been talking about the Atlantic Charter at the moment. Well, remember, um, Churchill went to the Atlantic Charter on the Prince of Wales, the great battleship, very modern ship. Uh, that ship was sunk uh, within six months of that off the coast of Malaya in the South China Sea by relatively crude, though well used, uh, well, um, uh, you know, operating um, torpedo bombers. Now, what one's got to say, in other words, is this. We might try and deter China. We have to be aware that it is not easy to deter a state close to its borders 
and that there are going to be practical implications and we might lose and we have to determine what that means. So let us give you an obvious case. And this is far more uh, serious than most of the stuff being discussed at the present moment in politics. If um, the British aircraft carrier in the Chinese South China Sea, when it goes there, is sunk, by people unknown, shall we say. They're obviously the Chinese. What precisely are we going to do about it? I mean, are, are people urging that we should use nuclear bombs to respond? No, of course not. Uh, and if we did, uh, there are precious few of them that we could actually use. And unless the Americans chose to see it as a cause of belly, which we don't want them to do because we don't want World War Three, etc., etc., etc. In other words, one needs some very hard-headed thought here about how to make deterrence effective and how to send messages that, while clear, do not provoke the war we do not wish to occur. So that is important. And in the meantime, it is sad to say that Western politics is more engrossed with, quite frankly, feckless issues than they are with thinking in these broader strategic terms, which are all too urgent at the present moment. Well, Professor Black, we'll be returning to these strategic themes in a future podcast. We have to leave it there, unfortunately, but thank you very much for your insights on the long Cold War. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.